It's May 15th, 2006, and you're listening to The NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Chris Millard. Make sure you stay tuned to today's NACOcast. At the end of the show, we'll give you a chance to win an iPod Nano, preloaded with music of Pinka Zuckerman and the National Arts Centre Orchestra. A different kind of performer this week, and one who is extremely familiar to all of my NACOcast listeners, certainly the most recognizable voice on CBC Radio, Eric Friesen. Welcome, Eric. Good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you, me doing an interview with you is a little bit like, let's see, you, you giving me a bassoon lesson. <laughs> well, being interviewed by you is about the same for me. Okay. Well, let's start with the fact of uh, there is a rumor coming from several of your producers that the bassoon is not your favorite instrument. What are we going to do about that, Eric? <laughs> the secret is out. The secret I'm afraid. is out. I'm afraid. It's true, you know. It's not that it's not a favorite. It's not a favorite solo instrument. Okay. I mean, I, I'm happy for it to tootle away in the background. But I, I have to say that uh, most of the time, most of the time, I find it not the most pleasing on the ear. Mm-hmm. Just, just full disclosure. You know? Well, I guess we bassoonists have some work cut out for us to <laughs> to persuade you to come over to the dark side, huh? Actually, you know, I heard you play uh, the Mozart Concerto not so long ago, and it did help to change my mind a bit. Now, don't butter me up for this interview. <laughs> Listeners would like to know this, I think, that you and I are standing up. We are. And we're standing up is a little bit unusual if for a recording situation where normally one is sitting behind a microphone at a desk. <laughs> but uh, Eric Friesen in the last few months has found himself doing his show Studio Sparks standing up. Why? Well, Chris, I, uh, I was working with a vocal coach uh, not so long ago, and um, we were doing all kinds of different things. And he suggested I try it. Um, he saw me in the studio kind of in, sitting in my chair, sort of hunched over the table, and he was suggesting that uh, maybe if I stood, um, I would find it more freeing. I would find uh, greater use of my voice, uh, more access to, to breath, and, uh, and also the free use of my hands. And so I did. I tried it. And I remembered then that I had done it years and years ago. And I loved it from the first moment. I felt free. I felt, uh, first of all, I had I have a, you know, a place to spread my hands like a, like a conductor, like a preacher, right? And, uh, and I, found myself, I found myself with a lot more, more breath, more support for the voice. I found a greater range in my voice. It was just great. And I could even you know, move around a little bit as I was talking, provided I'd be up near the microphone. And, um, and so you can teach an old dog new tricks. Well, you know, you're describing exactly what I hope to see from my students when I'm giving a master class really? in bassoon playing. Absolutely. Huh. And I think any wind player, not just wind players, but uh, violinists, violists, everyone but the cellists, who usually have their students stand up when possible. No kidding. And of course, it's really obviously important for the wind players because, as you say, I think it enables us to use our abdominal muscles more effectively. And in the case of of an artist like yourself, who is relying upon the resonance of the voice, 
This is, can only be helpful. For us standing up, it, it actually enhances the resonance of our sound and our ability to get air in and out. So I can certainly identify with that. So why don't you do it more in, a, in an actual orchestral situation? Well, I'll tell you what, next time you come to NACO and watch the orchestra, if you happen to see me stand up just when I feel like it, <laughs> I have a feeling there may be some problems with that. <laughs> like the soloist in a big band, right? Yeah, but you've seen some of these orchestras that perform, everybody performing standing up. Yes, I it, have. It's quite remarkable. Uh, period, period instrument yeah. uh, orchestras particularly. And some modern groups too. Some modern groups as well. And, and the odd string quartet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Where, where the cellist is sitting up on a high podium and the yeah. other three players are standing and it frees them up in the same way. So perhaps this is a new wave of performing. You, you started out your career in radio in the very early 60s, although rumor has it that as a kid in the house, you, you could see yourself as a radio announcer, whatever, from very early on. Huh? What did your parents have to put up with, Eric? What my parents had to put up with is I actually built a radio studio in my bedroom. You did. I built a broadcast board, and I built, and I had, I had an old um, Stuart Warner radio record player, which I, which I put right next to me, and uh, I just, I, I, I essentially created a mock studio. Not only that, I got all the kids in my neighborhood to come, and Menno Klippenstein was my sportscaster, and. <laughs> Gerald Gerbrandt, who is now president of Canadian Mennonite University, uh, was uh, a newscaster. You know, I, I, I had roles for all these guys. It was just like, you know, playing doctor, I guess. And you did this on a regular basis. I did this on a regular basis. Oh, it's too bad we don't have tape recordings of this. Huh? <laughs> I think it's just as well. Where on earth did this love of radio come from? What were you listening to in southern Manitoba in the fifties? Well, you know, it 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 came, Chris, from listening to. These all-night radio DJs on clear channel stations from all over North America, Chicago, Minneapolis, um, Detroit, New Orleans. Uh, I, I had this little table AM radio, and I was supposed to be asleep. And I'd be under the covers with the radio because I didn't want my parents to hear me. And I'd be listening to these guys, and I'd be tuning them in. And the moment it gets dark on the prairies, of course, you can tune in these clear channel stations from right straight across the continent. And I fell in love with their voices and the intimacy and uh, the freedom that they had to do what they had to do and, and the way they created kind of a, a community. They created a place. There was a guy named Franklin Hobbs on WCCO in Minneapolis. And uh, he would talk about the old red chair at Hobbs House. Welcome to the old, you know. So you really felt you were sitting down in this old red chair next to this guy who had this absolutely wonderful, warm, rich, deeply resonant voice. Very visual. And uh, so it, anyway, I, I became, I fell in love with these guys. And I listened to them. And then when this radio station, CFAM, showed up in my community, CFAM, 1957, I was 11 years old, um, Suddenly, I was able to to put a tangible, um, a tangible place to this passion and this love of mine, and so uh, I just hung around like a like a kid hangs around at a hockey rink. You know, I became a radio station rat, and I just hung around this rather really interesting group of people who uh, had come from all over the place to start this half classical, half commercial, uh, half um, religious station, Mennonite station. These were characters, and I, you know, as a young kid growing up in a small town, was entranced by them, and and so I just hung around, and you know, went for coffee and cigarettes, and you know, did whatever whatever errands I could, and uh, and it, it just deepened and accentuated my 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 love for the medium, and I have to say that going back to those days when I was under the cover with that little RCA table radio, listening to these all night guys, it's all I ever wanted to do. 
I just fell in love with it and, and uh, said that's what my life is going to be. Yeah, there was something magic too about having that time to yourself in the, in the middle of the night. You know? So what about music itself? Was, uh, did you study an instrument? I did study the piano for a long time, but very badly. I hardly admit it because I was a terrible piano player. Being Mennonite, I mean, one of the things you learn to do uh, is to sing in parts, you know, even before you can read music, yeah. you know, because on Sundays we would sing Grace at the table. You know, in four parts, if not six. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where did this Where did this come from in the Mennonite community? I think it was the outlet. I think it was the legitimate artistic outlet of Mennonites. You know, there most other artistic things, painting or dancing or all of that, was all frowned on. Mm -hmm. um, there was so much was restricted. It was so austere that music was legitimate, and so it just flourished. It flourished in church, of course, primarily, but also at home as this got developed. So. It was just natural when you grew up in a Mennonite house that uh, you would know how to sing and, and, and you would learn how to sing from a very young age. Were the interests in music very eclectic or was it largely church-based? Well, in my home, uh, it was both that church music, but my dad was a record collector. And so this is what got me going on classical music. And uh, my earliest sound memories, one of my earliest sound memories, is the voice of Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau singing Schubert songs with Gerald Moore at the piano. Because my dad would come home at night, he was a businessman, and he would be working in his study, and uh, uh, the moment dinner was done, he would go and work, and he would put records on the record player. And so I grew up with these leader, I grew up with Bach, who was big, big in our household, but also uh, orchestral recordings. My dad was a, a, a chamber music, my dad's a huge chamber music fan, and so, um, you know, we would, and he was a member of the RCA Record Club, you know, so we would have uh, the Rubenstein recordings. The records came into the house and, uh, and I heard them. And then even when my dad wasn't around, I would play them. So this really fueled my love of music. Yeah. So when did the, the uh, teenage love and passion actually translate into a paying job? It was 1963. I was... Uh, I'd hung around the, this station for a long time. I got the call from the program director at CFAM. Would I like to? Uh, would I like to come and uh, and uh, read the midnight news and you know do do? Would I like to have a summer job? Basically, the program director and the station manager had to come and visit my father one evening to get his permission to hire me. Can you believe this? I mean, I was a kid just getting a summer job, and. Um, the fact that my father let them in meant he was going to say yes. So my so they came to ask my dad's permission, and he said yes, okay. Um, he was not very happy about it, but uh, but he let me go, and I think he understood the passion. And, and uh, is your dad still living? He is. So he's lived long enough to see the tremendous career you've had. Yes, he has. Yes, and he listens to me every day in Altona. He's still living in Altona. His eighties. He'll be eighty-six in July, and. Uh, he does admit that he falls asleep from time to time <laughs> in the afternoon listening to the music. But, but just yesterday he called me to say that I had uh, Maurizio Pellini playing Mozart Piano Concerto Number no. 21, and he called me to say that he thought that was a pretty good performance, he said, which meant that it was a really good performance as far as he was concerned. Yeah, One can certainly see where your, where your passion and your ability to, to color and, and, and make come alive uh, descriptions of music. I, I can see it in this uh, in this early passion. Let's skip ahead a little bit. You ended up um, at CBC um, here in Ottawa. Tell, right. tell me about that. 1972, uh, I was married with two, two little kids, and uh, I was working commercial radio in St. Catharines, Ontario. 
but had been trying to get into the CBC for some time and had taken the CBC announced test in Toronto. I took it with Lamont Tilden, uh, one of the great old, great Monty Tilden, one of the great old announcers. And so there happened to be two jobs open that summer in 72. And uh, one was Ottawa, one was Toronto. And uh, the Ottawa job sounded more interesting to me, uh, sounded just like a lot more opportunity. And so I said to my wife, I've got a 15-week contract. What do you think? And she said, go for it. And so we moved to Ottawa in, uh, in 72. And uh, all I had was the promise of 15 weeks. But I always believed, Chris, that you know, all life offers you is a shot. And if you get a shot and you, you go for it, and then you see what happens. And I came here. Station manager was a woman named Sheila Skelly. We were still in the chateau, of course, at the time. And, um, and, I, and there were tremendous opportunities, both in television and radio. I filled in everywhere through that summer. And at the end of the summer, she offered me a year's contract, and I never looked back. Talk about that audition. I know what auditions are like for <laughs> symphony musicians, but this is a different kind of, of an audition. What are the criteria? Are they looking for the ability to think on the feet, or are they starting just looking at the instrument and the in inflection and the ability to express? Well, in the old days, it's different now. But in the old days, they weren't so much looking for your ability to ad lib, although there was a, a, a small part of the, of the test. But they were, they were looking for your general level of education. Um, they were looking for your ability with languages. I remember I had to, I was really lucky in my test because I had to introduce Beethoven's song cycle An die Ferne Geliebte. And having grown up speaking German, that was, that was very easy. Monty was quite impressed with that. My French wasn't as good, but uh, that was okay. And, and so they tested you for, for that. I think for the quality of your voice, uh, for the musicality of the way you speak. There was a, you know, in those days it was much more regimented. I mean, we all kind of came out sounding alike in a way. I mean, there was a certain CBC style. And they were looking for, I think, the ability to mold you into that style. And there was a pronunciation book, was there not? There was. There was a huge pronunciation book. And not only that, but every week there was a guy named Steve Brody at the CBC in Toronto who was in charge of... uh, he was, um, he was sort of our advisor across the country. And no matter where you were a staff announcer in the CBC, whether in Newfoundland or Vancouver or Toronto, you would get an advisory once a week from Steve about, the, the, say, the new names that had crept into the news that week, Ugandan names or whatever. But the, he, you would get a little blurb, a printed blurb, and, it, and the, the headline, the name of his column was, You Don't Say. <laughs> so you, it was in the negative, right? right. You don't say this. Yeah. And, he would, and then he would monitor people all across uh-huh. the country. And he'd pick up and he'd, he'd call you or he'd email you. Or it wasn't email in those days. It was uh, telex or note or something. And he'd send you a memo and he'd say, uh, I heard you say Uganda instead of Uganda or something like that. And there you go. So there was, there was a lot of that. There was a real, that, that's why we all learned to speak a kind of CBC announce English. You know, all, all of us had access, sort of accents, regional accents. We came from... I certainly did, coming from southern Manitoba. The Newfoundlanders did, and everybody else did. But uh, we all kind of got molded in that in that way. But that corporate uniformity has disappeared to some extent. Totally disappeared, and, and I think rightfully so. And, and I'll tell you, the greatest challenge I have, in a way, Chris, even still at my age, and my experience, my, my time in broadcasting, is to unlearn all the things I learned. All that stiff, starchy formality. Um, all that you know, keeping emotion at bay and being sort of dispassionate and hiding behind certain kinds of language. I've, I've had to spend a lot of time unlearning that. Yeah, it's like unlearning bad musical style, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And, I, you know, as much as many of us would say, I, I know I certainly say, I wish I had a voice like Eric Friesen's, 
I don't for a minute think that this is something that you were just born with. You've worked very hard to cultivate your expressive abilities. Well, it's a combination. I mean, I think I, I, I was born with a, or once my voice changed, I realized I had a pretty good voice. My father has a very nice voice. I inherited that. Uh, my uncle's, it was a kind of a, a freezing trait, at least in that family. But yes, you do work very hard to develop it. And, um, and in my case, a lot of that development was, uh, was on the job training. You know, it was, it, we didn't, there wasn't, in those days, you couldn't go to school for this sort of thing. You did it on the job. You took courses through the CBC. The CBC was very good. I mean, they had good training department and, and they, they taught you how to breathe and, and that kind of thing. But um, most of it was just on the job training, learning, being critiqued, listening to yourself, uh, which is the best thing. I don't know if that's the oh, case. Oh, it's exactly the same yeah, in our industry, yeah. sure. Yeah, listening to yourself. You hear all the wrong things, you know, all the, all the mistakes. Well, my great advantage in my own playing was spending 25 years in the CBC Orchestra in Vancouver and getting to hear what I was doing on a regular basis. And yeah, lucky you. Huh? Lucky me. I was very yeah. fortunate. But, you know, you talk about the fact that there, there weren't really schools of performance for radio broadcasters as there are schools for performance in musical instrument. And yet I would say to you that on-the-job training is the way really most of us got where we have. I mean, you're lucky to get a job in an orchestra, and you start out with some certain basics, but... The, uh, the, gr- the growing and the learning and the evolution is a lifetime process. We skip forward now to your move two years ago here to Ottawa. I made the move here very consciously because uh, I had a lot to do with the starting of the show, Studio Sparks. And uh, I can't even say that this was a very rational thing. Uh, I understood at some instinctive level that starting a new show here would be a much better place to start a new show than a than Toronto. New perspective. New perspective, away from the center of things. Ottawa is a you know is a very special place. And they built you a new building, Eric. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that was part of it. You see, they built this. They didn't build it for me. It's not the freezing block yet. Not the freezing block. No. It's but they did build this building, and uh, and they were looking for a network show to put in it. And uh, so when I came up with this idea. And I actually, I made, I made the suggestion that we come to Ottawa. And uh, there was tremendous enthusiasm for that, uh, not just from the CBC, but from the whole musical community here or the people that I knew here. So it really was a good fit. And, and um, it was a, there was a, the, CBC Ottawa is a very special place. Um, a lot of the regional CBC places are like this. There's a tremendous feeling of community TV works with radio. French works with English. Uh, you know, you. I was going to say we intermarry, you know, but we do. I mean, we. You know, I, I. I might do something on Radio One, and Anthony Germain might come on my show, and Don Newman will come from television and do something with me, and vice versa. There's a wonderful feeling of it's a real station, and um, and somehow. All of the component parts, whether it's publicity or communications or the guys who fix things, it's just, it works differently from Toronto. Toronto is this big behemoth network place, and it doesn't have that sense of community. It doesn't have that sense of esprit. And I knew what it was like here because I'd come here to do live broadcasts with with, uh, with NACO. I knew what it was like, and uh, I just figured it would be the best place to do it. And I was absolutely the right decision to make. But boy, you've taken on a huge responsibility. All of this live radio every day, and it's not a big staff. No, there are there are three three people supporting you. Is that right? Well, essentially, I, I have an executive producer, I have a music producer, and I have a talk producer, and uh, we also have an engineer. 
You must spend an awful lot of time researching and writing. Yeah, I do. I do. But you know, it doesn't feel that way when you love what you do. That's true. One of the characteristics of this show, which is most appealing, is the eclectic nature of your musical choices. You're able to, I mean, you really have carte blanche to really branch out. You must get on your desk dozens and dozens of CDs every week. Yep. 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 So what do you do? You you can't possibly listen to everything, but do you you try to take a sampling of everything that's sent to you? I try to. Um, You know, now there's so much self-publishing going on that you get a lot of stuff and and not all of it very good. But I try to. What I do is because uh, on weekends I go to Amherst Island near Kingston, which is where my wife is full-time. We have a house there. So I have this two-hour drive down and two-hour drive back on the weekends. And I, I, this is what I do. I literally, I make a pile of CDs, and I don't even know what they are. And I put them in the, in, the, in the CD player, and I listen. So in other words, I want to judge without any kind of preconception of what I'm, who it is, or you know, whether it's a Sony CD, or whether you know, Sadie Bloggs from, uh, from Carlton Place has, has done this in her own backyard. And, and, and I'll, I'll put them in, and, and I listen. And I can tell in 30 seconds whether I think So you have a reject pile, and a maybe pile, and a definite yeah, pile. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you throw the rest in the back seat as you go, huh? I, I kind of throw them in the back seat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I make notes, and then I come in, and then I give them to David Houston, our music producer, and we talk about them. Um, but that's what I do with new stuff. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff I know that I can choose from, but... Uh, but I, I, I find that's the best way. You know, we have an analogy to this in the music business, which is how we select people for symphony orchestra jobs. You probably know this, that this is all done behind a screen. That's right. We don't know who we're listening to. We don't know where they study. We don't know what gender they are. We don't know what age they are. And it gives you an objectivity. Yeah. Yeah, On exactly. the other hand, it does put you in a kind of a mood of, of real criticism. It puts you in, in a space of kind of, well, I think for you, you're describing a very holistic reaction. For, I think it's different for us because we have to eliminate so much so we become very reductionist in our thinking. Well, yeah, you're, you're choosing somebody, you're deciding somebody's career, uh, but you're also deciding on the future of the orchestra, the sound of the orchestra. And I sometimes feel, you know, it's, it, is, it is unfortunate when you have to say no to people, but I take great responsibility doing a personal show like this for what goes on the air. And if I feel like if I can't sell it, uh, then how can I convince others to listen to it? You know, so, so that's, uh, it, it is a, it is a, it's a very personal and it's a very, um, it's a very final process, but there you are. It's what comes with the territory. Yeah, and, it, and the interesting thing is that you're describing a responsibility to yourself and to the listener, which is a very different responsibility than commercial radio would have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, if I was working in commercial radio, I'd be given a playlist. Even even if I was in a classical station, it'd be a top 40 playlist, and we'd have, you know, the same old things. Andrea and Bocelli every week. Yeah, Andrea Bocelli and, and worse. Yeah. Are you an optimist about the about the continued cultivation of our serious listeners, if I can call them that, in Canada? I don't mean to, I don't want to sound elitist in terms of distinguishing serious listeners only to those people who like classical music. So perhaps I should reframe the question and say, in terms of the traditional models of serious classical music, are you an optimist? Yes. Why? Well, it's really very simple because I love it and I believe in it. 
And I believe that if I love it and, and if I believe in it, it has to have a future. It's a very arrogant thing to say, but in a way it's that simple. Uh, but it's not just that simple. I also see and experience every day the kind of response that I get to people who listen to, to the radio. And I also talk to people because I go out and, you know, I bring people into my studio and we go out and we do remotes and we do them here at the Arts Centre, uh, the debut series in the lobbies on Fridays. We have one coming up uh, uh, very shortly. So I'm, I'm a believer in the music and I'm a believer in the medium. I know how the medium touches people. And so I know that as long as we're doing our job, as long as we're being true to the music and as we're being true to the medium and as long as we're being imaginative and as long as we push ourselves to always grow and learn and do better, I believe that uh, we will continue to spark that magic which makes people listen to us. So, I mean, that's a very general answer. Uh, if you're talking about classical music, it's easy to be pessimistic about classical music. It's easy to be pessimistic about the business. But I'm not pessimistic about that either. I see too many good news stories out there. Um, we've gone through a lot of sea changes. We've gone through a lot of turbulence, especially in the recording industry, and to some extent with big institutions like orchestras. But uh, that's getting sorted out, and I think that we're entering a very, very exciting uh, and ex even expansionist time in classical music right now. Um, downloading on the internet. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, for what role do you see, uh, what's happening with the CBC in terms of multimedia? Well, the CBC is always a bit slow in things like this, but we're getting there, you know. I mean, little little by little. Um, for example, um, now the, some of the live sessions that I do on Studio Sparks are being uh, being filed on the internet, where, you know, uh, so you can go to our website, Studio Sparks, and, and find the... Uh, live session we did with the Bozart Trio or Jimmy Ennis. Um, the reason it takes, the ti takes time with the CBC is, is that uh, in music is that we have to renegotiate all of our agreements with the AF of M. And that's a tricky business because the AF of M, as you know, being a good card-carrying member is a musicians' union. One, yes, yeah. one tough union. Yep. And so, and the CBC has traditionally been a very lucrative part, place for musicians to make a living. And so, it, you know, it's going to take a while, but we're going to get there where where people can download because other broadcasters have shown that to be tremendously successful. For example, last year the BBC uh, allowed listeners to down, download the five Beethoven symphonies, uh, five Beethoven symphonies. And um, and they put it out there for a small for a minimum small charge. I can't remember what it was. They got 1.4 million hits. Isn't that extraordinary? That's just extraordinary. Yeah. 1.4 million hits. And now I know in the London Orchestra, some of them are offering patrons first half concerts on CD as they yeah. leave the hall. John Elliott Gardner is doing that with the European Baroque soloists. Yeah, he just did it with a Mozart concert. You you uh, you hear the Mozart. Symphony Number no. Thirty Nine in the first half. They burn the CD in the second half, and you can buy it going out because they prepared the uh, the booklet and the and the case. For What's it. really interesting is that all of this new media is causing a sea change in the, in the sense of permanence. If we look back before the 1920s and 1930s, before radio and television, and at the before the earliest days of successful recording, music was a one-time deal. You went to a concert, you remembered it. You didn't know the Beethoven symphonies unless you were trained to read a score or, or you had gone to a concert hall. And then we went through you know, 75 years of a sense of recording for for eternity. Right. The Toscanini cycle was going to last for 200 years. And, right. But we're changing now because media has become so uh, expendable in a way, becomes no problem. D download to your iPod this show. When you're done with it, it's gone. 
It's no big deal. It's not a big, big expense. So big changes afoot, aren't there? Big changes are afoot. But, you know, there's a life and vitality to that. Yes, I, absolutely. You know, that's why I'm an optimist, Chris. Yeah. Uh, I really am. And, uh, I mean, there's lots of work to be done to, you know, to make sure that the institutions like the CBC, like the National Arts Centre, like the orchestras across the country, I'm very excited. I'm very excited about the, about the future. Talking about your future, at some point you'll be ready to go off and take up golf, I understand. <laughs> You've been talking to my colleagues. Again. Oh, your colleagues <laughs> tell me that you love to watch golf well, and I that you're not a golfer. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm not it, a go- it must be some form of, of quasi-meditation. Huh? <laughs> well, you yeah, know, that's true. It is a kind of Zen pursuit. Oh, yeah. Well, Eric, I see out of this interview two clear paths that we need to pursue. <laughs> One is the bassoon lessons, and the other is the golf lessons. <laughs> no, well, bassoon lessons maybe, because I, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced uh, on that. Be careful. I might take you up on that. Well, but golf lessons, no. Golf lessons, I think uh, I just want to do this job for as long as I can. Right. Honest to God, I, I'm not interested in golfing. I'm yeah. only interested in, uh, in continuing to talk to my audience. Well, I hope it lasts for a long time. We're all great fans of yours. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Great pleasure, Chris, and I uh, admire what you're doing here with these podcasts. Bravo. Thank you, Eric. It's time now for the NACOCAST contest. If you've been a regular listener to our program, you'll know that we're just dying to give away a brand new iPod Nano. It's preloaded with recordings of Pinkus Zuckerman and the NACO, as well as all of our previous NACOCasts. Well, here's the contest question. We'll choose the winner in a draw from all correct answers submitted. Rules and regulations are posted on our website at nac.ca slash podcasts. Ready? In an interview with a guest several weeks ago, I prefaced my introduction to the discussion of an opera with a quote from a well-known American literary icon. What is his name and from which of his books did that quote come? Winners will be notified by email. So give this your best shot. The winner will be notified on May 29th by email. Good luck. <laughs>